Welcome to Vision is More Than 2020, a podcast aimed at talking about your vision, your eyes, and how they play a role in overall visual and systemic function. Dr. Zolnicki and Lakowski, with the help of various guests, will work to help you understand more about your visual system and all the pieces to the vision puzzle. Welcome to this week's episode of Vision is More Than 2020. Today is going to be a Dr. Z and Dr. L episode. Yay! And we're going to be talking all about amblyopia. Uh, Before we get into our amblyopia conversation, we want to talk about our weekly insight. And today we are so excited to highlight this project that we stumbled across. It's called the Beyond 2020 Project. And what they do is they actually offer scholarships for vision therapy, which I think is really, really exciting. I think there really isn't anything else out there that serves the population that can't financially afford vision therapy in terms of scholarships. Um, So how do you qualify? You can go to their website beyond2020project.org. And essentially, it's based on financial needs. So there's a sliding scale that you to determine if you qualify financially. So you just submit your financial information and in terms of what they have available for scholarships, you may qualify. So make sure you check out beyond2020project.org. I think this is such a great project. The episode that we recorded with Dr. Juanita Collier really touched upon this subject about how there is this barrier to entry for some populations due to the cost of vision therapy and the fact that many insurances don't cover it and a lot of vision therapy doctors don't accept insurance. So this is a really great resource for anybody that needs the services but maybe can't financially afford it. So I am so excited about this project. I had no idea about it. Thank you for bringing this to our attention, Dr. L, uh, because I think it's really wonderful to highlight. And I will put into the show notes, uh, the direct link to the website for you guys, because I think it's so wonderful. Uh, So today we are going to be talking all about amblyopia or lazy eye. Um, We've recorded this in the past, kind of debunking myths around amblyopia, but we really want to do a deep dive into what amblyopia is, what causes it, what are the visual manifestations and treatment options with amblyopia or lazy eye, uh, and I guess we could just get started, Dr. L. Yeah, so I want to just kick off by defining what amblyopia is, because I think it's a term I'm not not a lot of people really hear or know what it means. I think that the term lazy eye gets tossed around instead. Uh, so amblyopia means the reduction of your best corrected visual acuity, so what your vision is, less than 20-20, or at least a two-line difference in your visual acuity between your two eyes. So this reduced visual acuity cannot be directly related to any structural abnormalities of the eye, so it's not due to a disease process within the eye. And that vision cannot be corrected to 2020 by just glasses alone, which is a really key point. Um, and I think where the term lazy eye comes from is what's usually happening is something is occurring within your visual system or puts the eyes in competition with each other. So there's a favored eye and then a less favored eye and the brain starts to use the eye that can see better. And then the other eye essentially becomes a lazy eye. Uh, but Dr. Zine, I really don't love that term. I think you know, when you're having a conversation with kids, anytime you're bringing up the word lazy, it just has this really negative connotation. And I think it makes the kids feel as if they have done something wrong to not be using that eye. And that's not the case at all. It's just simply something that's occurring along the path of their visual development that has caused this process to develop. 
So a really key piece of amblyopia is the time period of when something occurs along that visual system, because there's this whole stepwise fashion that our visual system develops and your brain really forms a really strong connection to each eye equally. So if there's anything that blocks that visual input to an eye during that critical time, it can potentially lead to this process of amblyopia. So typically we're talking about this sensitive development period, which is really considered up to about the age of seven. So if there's anything that occurs along the way before the age of seven, there's a higher risk of amblyopia developing. If there's any event that affects the vision beyond this point, it's less likely to have this process of amblyopia occur because the brain has had a good chance to have strong visual input from each eye and that connection between your brain and eye has developed and you've received stimulation from each eye to the brain. And the reason we really wanna highlight amblyopia is because it affects a lot of people and not a lot of people really understand what it is or don't really have symptoms and may not seek out treatment during that critical time period. But I found a really staggering statistic, which was amblyopia affects two to 4% of the population, which is a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And it's the no number one cause of monocular blindness. I didn't realize that it was that prevalent in the population. So that's a really great statistic to kind of have to understand and to share with our patients that are experiencing amblyopia, because I think they feel like they're one of a million, and that's not really the case. There, there's more of them out there than we realize. So let's talk about what what causes amblyopia. And there's four main causes of amblyopia. The first one and the most common, I would say, is refractive amblyopia. And what that means is that there is a difference in the prescription between the two eyes that causes one eye to see better than the other. It can be binocular, but that's fairly rare. And the tricky thing with refractive amblyopia is often these kids go undiagnosed because they have one good seeing eye. Until they cover that eye that has the higher prescription, the higher amount of astigmatism, they don't know. And kids don't really have the language to communicate that one eye is clear and one eye is blurry. And kids are, what we've learned in practice is kids are really smart. And you have to make sure that when you're checking their vision that they are completely covering the eye. Uh, otherwise they kind of sneak and look around to get around being able to see the chart with their not such great seeing eye. Uh, and this is where you know, those school screenings come into place because sometimes we um, don't get them until they're seven, right? At that, the upper limit of the developmental process of amblyopia. I think that a lot of these refractive cases are being caught a little bit earlier with the advent of the pediatricians doing that screener on uh, their, at the one-year-old and two-year-old appointments, uh, having, you know, my own children going through that process. I was like, oh, you are actually checking their vision, which is really great without, you know, because one and two year olds can't tell you what they see on the chart. So I do think that a lot of primary care physicians are becoming more attuned to this etiology of amblyopia so that they are trying to heat it off before it happens. The second one and other most common one is a, that is a little bit more obvious is strabismus amblyopia or when a child has an eye turn um, or a misalignment between the two eyes. Now, often, there's all, we've talked about strabismus uh, in the previous episodes where there's all types of strabismus, right? The eye can turn in, the eye can turn out, the eye can turn up, the eye can turn down. The one that is most likely to cause amblyopia is when the turn is constant. 
if the eye is getting some sort of visual stimulation, right, if that eye turn is intermittent, no matter which way the eye is going, it is likely not going to cause a reduction in visual function. But if that eye turn is constant, that's when we're concerned and when we really need to have some sort of intervention to reduce that from happening. The third one is when the patient has a combination of these things. They have refractive error discrepancies between the two eyes as well as an eye turn. And that is kind of fairly common too, where it's both of them. Uh, so we need to correct with glasses and then other interventions as well. The last one is a little bit different. This is called deprivation amblyopia. And what that means is that something has interrupted visual information getting to the eye. The most common causes are if there is a baby born with a congenital cataract. It sounds crazy, right? We associate cataracts with old people, but some babies can be born with a cataract. Uh, they do check for this in the hospital with babies. They do look to see if there's any indication you might, uh, as a parent, if you see a white pupil or anything like that, something off in pictures, uh, that might be an indication. The other cause may be something called a ptosis or a lid droop where it is going over the visual axis. So not everybody's lids are completely symmetric, but when it becomes a concern is when that lid droops far enough over that visual information isn't getting to the back part of the eye. And this, although it's the least common type, it often is the most severe because it's full deprivation of getting any visual information to the back part of the eye that is so critical for development. So those are the causes of amblyopia and they're very, the most important thing is that you're bringing your kid in for an eye exam because some of these things you wouldn't know, right? You would see the eye turn or you would see a lid drooping, but you may not know what their refractive error is that may be contributing to a lack of visual development. Right. I think that's a really big piece is very often the primary symptom of an amblyopic eye is simply blurry vision because there is reduced visual acuity in that eye. However, when that process is occurring in just one eye, your brain is really, really smart. So it just switches to using the vision that's clearer in your other eye. So often people don't even notice this. And I know we both have had patients in our chair where one of the first things we do is we occlude an eye to, to test the visual acuity in each eye. And they say, oh, oh my goodness, I'm blurring this eye. I never realized because we don't walk around in our typical day occluding an eye or you know, comparing the vision between the two eyes necessarily. We, we function as two-eyed people. Um, and also blurry vision in one eye is something that's really difficult for children to communicate to you. There are a few signs to look out for in kids um, that may be a sign of an underlying amblyopia developing. One thing that they may do is they may intermittently close an eye. Um, they may also just kind of turn their head and that's kind of a tip off that they're maybe trying to just favor the eye that's seeing clearer and shut off the information from the other eye. Um, or some kids, if they're really habitually leaning against their hand, they may, that might be a way that they're blocking off that eye as well. So those are just some easy tips to look out for in your kids. And then the other thing I want to highlight is, you know, even though there are not too many symptoms with amblyopia other than the blurry vision, when we talk about reduced visual acuity in that eye, we really are talking about a lot more than just reduced vision. Because as your eye is forming a connection with your brain, all of these other pieces of your visual system are developing as well. 
So when you have reduced visual input coming in through your eye to your brain, a lot more than just your visual acuity is going to be reduced. So often the visual skills of the amblyopic eye are overall affected. So these patients have reduced contrast sensitivity where they have a harder time discerning black versus white and color differences, that eye can have spatial distortions. They can have reduced accommodative function where the focusing muscle doesn't work as well in that eye. And then also you have to think about because there's this asymmetry between the two eyes during this process of amblyopia, that's going to affect your binocularity system, you know, your system that helps your eyes work together as a team that's going to be reduced. And it's also going to then in turn reduce your 3D vision or your stereopsis, which we like to call it. And that's going to affect your depth perception because the only way we really perceive depth accurately in our daily life is when the brain is paying attention to the image from each eye equally and taking that image from each eye in and turning it into one nice 3D image for you. So if your brain's not paying attention to both eyes, it's really going to affect your depth perception. So another thing to look out for is just if your kid is kind of clumsy, if they're missing steps, if they're knocking into walls and things, that might be a tip off that they're having difficulty with their depth perception. Yeah, you covered that so nicely. And I think the only other thing that I want to touch upon is that we also have to be aware of the fact that there is risk for a higher risk when for injury, right? If they are good, quote unquote, good eye or the eye that's seen clearly uh, is injured, it the person is left with a reduced visual acuity in that eye. So we are always big advocates for protection for these kids and even the adults. I, sometimes we have adults that come in there and they're, they had no idea that they had reduced visual acuity in one eye and they've figured out how to function. And we, even if they don't need glasses, we put them in a pair of glasses from a protection standpoint uh, because we really want to make sure that we're preserving uh, the health of the eye and getting, giving them the best visual acuity. I do just want to touch on a kind of a complicated part of amblyopia, which is the process of suppression. So like, why does the brain shut things off? And why, like, how does this happen, right? What is the process of amblyopia? So the reason why it happens is because we are two-eyed people. And when we have an image that's clear, and then an image that's not as clear, the brain gets confused, literally, and it doesn't know how to put those two images together. So instead of seeing double or not understanding the visual world, the brain begins to favor the image of the normal eye because it's less work, right? And there's less energy involved in that eye. So what everyone always thought was that it was a monocular issue, right? It's the eye with the least amount of information that has the reduced visual acuity. That's the quote unquote problem eye. But Dr. L alluded to this a little bit that we realize it's a monocular manifestation of a binocular disorder, right? It's not just the acuity, it's the overall depression of visual function that is the result of the two eyes not working well together. And there's been neuroimaging studies that have shown deficits at higher levels of the visual pathways within there are certain areas in the brain, um, the parietal occipital and the temporal cortices with those patients that have amblyopia. These higher level areas are part of the cortical network involved in 3D vision that form our binocular cues. Therefore, reduced responses in these areas could be related to the impaired binocular vision in amblyopic patients. So that's why treating this as a binocular condition is the most important way to treat it because it gets to 
correct these areas of higher level visual function for the best visual outcome for our patients. Uh, so it's really important for our listeners to understand that although it's we're focusing on the eye that has the reduction in visual acuity that doesn't seem to be functioning as well, it really is an overall binocular two-eyed disorder. This episode is brought to you by Luminous. For over 50 years, Luminous has developed innovative gold standard devices for eye care, like the first SLT laser, the first argon laser photocoagulator, and the revolutionary dual path SLT and YAG laser. Luminous, the inventor of intense pulse light, or IPL, is proud to announce the first and only IPL system to receive FDA approval for management of dry eye disease and to launch OptiLite, a bright solution for dry eyes. OptiLite uses Luminous's patented optimal pulse technology to allow consistent, precise, and controlled treatment. If your patients suffer from dry, gritty, tired eyes, and dry eye disease due to meibomian gland dysfunction that is impacting their quality of life and their vision, OptiLite puts the power for treating dry eye disease in the palm of your hand. OptiLite breaks the dry vicious cycle of inflammation and delivers improvement in tear breakup time and other clinical signs of dry eye disease. To learn how you can elevate dry eye management with OptiLite, visit Luminous.com slash OptiLite. Right, so I think that then leads us nicely into our treatment conversation, right? And we're going to go through a whole bunch of various treatment options for amblyopia and kind of highlight, you know, including which type of amblyopia you have that's going to kind of direct the treatment approach, right? And some of these are a little bit more old school, more so addressing more the monocular component, and then some of them are going to be more so addressing that binocular components. We're going to kind of highlight both. So the first line treatment in anybody who has amblyopia is corrective lenses, right? So if there is any refractive error there, we need to correct for it. Um, So that's where we're going to talk about doing glasses or possibly even contact lenses. And this is really, really crucial for those who have refractive amblyopia because they have that big difference in the refractive error between the two eyes or those patients that have that combination of a refractive amblyopia along with a strabismus. And the goal of this is to really try to put as much of that prescription that the eye has in front of that eye to really aid in improving the visual clarity coming in. Typically, when we are going to be prescribing, um, we're likely going to do those dilation drops, the drops to make your pupils nice and big, um, which enable us to get a full view of your retina and the health of the eyes. But what those drops also do is they kind of knock out those accommodative muscles that help you focus for up close. So it actually helps us determine your full, full prescription, which is really important in those with amblyopia. Because some people, more so people that are farsighted or are hyperopes, they can be kind of using those focusing muscles throughout our refractive process and can be hiding prescription from us. But we need to know what your full prescription is to get as much prescription in front of the eye as possible. So it's something that you'll likely go through uh, during your prescribing glasses process. And another conversation that we have with a lot of our patients that have amblyopia is contact lenses because especially in those who have a really high asymmetry between their prescriptions, that can be really hard to tolerate in glasses. There's just a lot of optical side effects between the lenses. You're going to have an image size difference between the lenses and the two eyes. And it can be really hard to wear that comfortably in glasses. But a lot of those factors are eliminated by wearing a contact lens. We can actually prescribe much more asymmetric prescriptions with a contact lens because the lens sits that much closer to your eye versus glasses, which I know sounds like a silly difference, but that little difference between where glasses sit and a contact lens sits on your eye makes a huge difference in terms of image size difference and everything like that. So we do typically recommend contact lenses. 
Now with that, you know, Dr. Z had touched upon, we really have to protect the better seeing eye, right? So even if we are recommending wearing a contact lens, we're also typically recommending wearing glasses over that um, in polycarbonate, which is the safest type of plastic, just to help protect that eye. Another thing to highlight in terms of correcting with whether it be glasses or contact lenses is sometimes we have to kind of ease you into it. So you know, you may expect some changes in prescription over time. Sometimes we have to kind of start at a beginning point and just follow up, see how many, how much of a visual gain we can achieve by just correcting your prescription and then, you know, sneak up the prescription over time and build up your wear time into what your full prescription is. Another consideration in terms of corrective lenses is prism. This is going to be more commonly considered if you have strabismic amblyopia, where you have an eye turn, um, that can help really lessen any double vision if it is present. Now, as a side note, that's not commonly present in these patients because you know, this process of suppression has occurred and the brain has kind of started to ignore the signal from the eye that's turning. So these patients don't often have double vision, but if they do, prism can sometimes help because that prism in front of that eye is gonna shift that image in, out, up, or down to better match the location of the image from the eye that's not turning. So it is something to be considered, but not usually one of our go-to treatment options. Now, the next area I wanna talk about is a little bit more of like an old school treatment approach um, where we, we're gonna talk about patching or monocular penalization. And really the thinking behind this whole treatment option is to penalize the better seeing eye, to kind of force the brain to use the eye that's amblyopic, right? Which you would think makes a lot of sense, right? If the, the brain is ignoring this eye, if you cover up the eye that sees well, it has no choice but to use the amblyopic eye. Um, and in theory, that can then start to improve the visual clarity in that eye and the visual skills of that eye if the brain is learning to use it more often. This Dr. Z and I incorporate into our treatment a little bit, but with all of this newer research coming out with neuroimaging showing that the cells in the brain that really represent your binocular cells and us knowing that it's affecting your binocular vision and your 3D vision, we want to address that component. And this old treatment approach is really just mirroring the thinking that amblyopia is a monocular process, therefore we need to treat it monocularly. With patching, um, back in the day, the thinking was to patch that eye as much as possible. So, you know, some people were recommending patching that that eye almost the majority of the day to really kind of force the brain to use that eye as much as possible. However, there was a really, really great group of studies that came out called the Amblyopia Treatment Studies, which was a group of studies conducted by the Pediatric Eye Disease Investigator Group that evaluated the effectiveness of all different amblyopia treatment regimens. And it really showed some really cool changes in thinking with patching. So I just wanted to share some of those guidelines with you listeners. So First, they looked at correcting just with glasses first, which is what we talked about as our first line treatment. Um, and they, what they did was they put patients in the prescription they needed, monitored their visual acuity in six to eight week increments until visual acuity gains plateaued. And then they looked at implementing a next treatment phase if, if needed, if you didn't get enough of a visual acuity gain just by simply correcting with glasses or contact lenses. And this study actually showed that just by correcting for the refractive error alone, improvement in visual acuity became equal to or within one line of the better seeing eye in about 30% of the cases, which I think is amazing. So that's why that's our first line treatment approach because we really wanna to try to improve the vision in that eye as much as possible. And in a lot of patients, that's all that they simply need. Um, if not, then we'll go into some of these other treatment options that we're talking about. 
And then they found a lot of changes in patching guidelines. So versus patching all day long, what they found was just two hours of daily patching was as effective as six hours of patching in those who had more moderate amblyopia, just classified as having a best corrected uh, visual acuity of between 2040 to 2080. And then they found only six hours of patching with one hour of near activities while patched was just as effective as full-time occlusion for those with severe amblyopia. So it's anyone who has vision worse than 2080, which I have to say really changed the way that we manage patients. Cause I know the thinking really was to patch as much as possible, but these studies are showing that that simply isn't true. That really you don't need as much patching to get the visual imp input gains that you're looking for in managing amblyopia, which I think is really, really interesting. So I know for both Dr. Z and I, you know, we do patching with some reservation. Um, we really do reserve it for those patients that have much more reduced vision, and we're just not getting the visual gains that we are looking for through just glasses alone or implementing a vision therapy management plan, which is what we're going to talk about next. Um, and then just as a side note, and also when I am talking about patching, that typically is done with like something that looks like a pirate patch covering the eye. Um, but there are other ways that you can essentially patch an eye. Um, there are some eye drops that, be can, that can be prescribed that essentially dilate the pupil of the better seeing eye. So the vision in that eye becomes blurry or there are even like occlusion filters that you can put on glasses over an eye as well. Yeah, there's lot, definitely options uh, for kids and there are a ton of cute ones now. If you like Google eye patch kid on Amazon or something like that, there are so many cute ones with so many cute designs. And this amblyopia treatment study really improved compliance with patching, right? Because we have those adult patients that were like, I was supposed to patch all day and I just refused. So then no treatment was done with those, those people. And now you can say, you only have to patch your child two hours a day. And I even say, I'm very lenient when it comes to the patching. I'm like, if you can only do an hour in the morning and an hour at nighttime, it's still two hours. It doesn't have to be a full two hours because if you have a blurry vision in an eye, it's really hard to look through that blurry vision. You know, and we, we try to be as understanding and compassionate and empathetic to these these kids that are saying like, I can't see it. You know, I can't see my food to eat it. How do you want me to do this? So by having these updated guidelines, it really has improved compliance. And Dr. L touched upon this, but I do want to make highlight uh, this one thing that you want to make sure that when the eye is patched, that they are doing something visually engaging, like a near activity. Even eating is considered a near activity, but things like puzzles and playing and really engaging that eye to do something visual is really important. But let's talk now about vision therapy, right? Our favorite treatment modality, because it's really getting to the root of why amblyopia developed, right? Like the two eyes don't know how to play nice together. Let's teach them how to do that. And that's really the focus of vision therapy with the two eyes is once we get the acuity close enough between the two eyes, how do we get those two eyes to work better together and build that binocularity, that relationship between the two eyes? So the goals of our vision therapy initially are to improve the monocular skills of the amblyopic eye, right? We're going to work on that focusing muscle, the tracking, the scanning, the fixation of that eye. Once we have that amblyopic eye close to the skills of the 
regular seeing eye, then we can move to anti-suppression. So what that looks like is now we have both eyes open and we have the amblyopic eye leading the activity, not letting the good eye kind of shut it down, right? It's like one of those, it's like the big brother versus the little brother, right? The, we want the little brother to run the show without the big brother kind of knocking him down. And this is a slow process. This isn't something that gets done in four to six weeks. We have to really build up that relationship uh, to allow for that, that relationship to kind of flourish. So we start with that amblyopic eye leading the activity. And then once we know that there's no suppression going on, we then move to having both eyes seeing the image together. And then we move to true binocularity where both eyes are together and they're working as a team and they are building that 3D vision. Again, this is a long process, but it's one that really allows for the full visual development to occur to get the best visual function as possible. And often when we go through this course of vision therapy, things stick, right? Because we're building, we're taking the steps back of where things kind of fell off and bringing it through normal visual development and the way that they should have been seeing from the beginning. So it's really, um, you know, as Dr. L said, some patients don't need all of this. Sometimes it's just a simple pair of glasses and they are, pretty good and they're doing okay if we catch them early enough and they're able to develop naturally on their own. Vision therapy for our amblyopic patients are really those that aren't getting the binocularity and the visual function that we want. And like I said, it's a process, but it's one that is tried and true and really has a great success when it's done correctly. Now, the one other area that we always like to touch upon is surgery. This is reserved for the etiology of amblyopia when we have strabismus or an eye turn, right? We wouldn't do surgery for anything else, but the primary reason why you would do surgery with a strabismic eye that also has amblyopia is more for a cosmetic reason, right? We're not, by moving the eye into alignment, you're not really changing the suppression or the brain adaptation that have developed. So as we talked about in the strabismus episode, it is really important to understand that surgery is really just structurally changing the eye, not the function of it. So we are advocates for working with our surgeons, right? If they have a combination, strabismus and refractive amblyopia, okay, let's get the eye in the same playing field, but then we need to do a lot of vision therapy to get that eye to stay there so that it doesn't turn back out. Uh, if we don't address the underlying visual function, that eye is going to say, oh, I'm in a new location. But guess what? I'm heading out um, <laughs> because it, it's not really getting to the root of the cause of the amblyopia. And this is a I just had a patient on Monday. He's undergone four surgeries in his life. He's 22. And his eye still turns in. He's never even heard of vision therapy until he happened to be doing some research on his own. And he is incredibly frustrated because the surgeon says, I can't do any more surgery. His eye is still in. And we're at a point now where I said to him, I said, 
we would need to do years and years and years of vision therapy. And he was frustrated because he never had the option laid out to him to have this combination of vision therapy and surgery um, to get him to have the best visual function. So he feels a little defeated that he just kept doing surgery to cosmetically get the eye to be straight. And he said that maybe uh, his eye was straight for maybe a few weeks post-surgery, but it always started to drift back in. And again, it was just because structurally they were changing it, but they weren't addressing the underlying etiology and the function of the two eyes. So when it comes to treatment for amblyopia, there's lots and lots of options. It could be really simple or it may be complicated. It really depends on the each case and figuring out what works best for each of our patients. Right. And any one of these treatment options or a combination of them, you know, are going to be most effective the earliest that we catch the underlying cause of amblyopia, right? But that doesn't mean that we can't treat or manage you if it's not caught early on. And I think that, you know, a lot of studies with neuroplasticity have really, you know, shown some correlating exciting possibilities for adults with amblyopia, you know, because neuroplasticity has really showed us that even in adult life, if something changes within your brain, it is possible for your brain to relearn tasks or to assign new areas of the brain to learn tasks that it didn't previously do. So there, it is possible to make changes in your neurological function and processing, even in adult life. We may not be able to make the same visual gains that we would have been able to if it was caught early on, but there are things that we can do. And I know one of our favorite patients that went through vision therapy with us came to us in her forties because she had had a concussion and her concussion specialist sent her to us because she was having a myriad of visual symptoms following that concussion but she concurrently also had refractive amblyopia and she had really never been managed with it. And she had one eye that was not seeing as clearly as the other eye. And we initiated a course of vision therapy to not only address her post-concussion symptoms, but we also incorporated some amblyopia work into her vision therapy program. And she gained visual acuities in the amblyopic eye. And by the end of her course of therapy, she had vision almost equal to her better seeing eye, which was really exciting to see. And I know that was life-changing for her and wasn't even the reason that she had come to us by any means. Um, but, you know, just anyone listening, it, it's never too late to intervene and try to improve the vision in the amblyopic eye. Yeah, I love that sentiment. I think it's a great one to end on that there is always room for improvement because as we always say, Vision is a learned process and our brain is always learning. So we hope that you guys enjoyed this episode and really learned a lot. We have an exciting September coming up for our listeners with lots of great guests. So we will talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Join our private Facebook group, Vision is More Than 2020, and follow us on Instagram. For additional content, check out our practice, Twin Forks Optometry, on both Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe, download, and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Tune in next week to learn more about your vision.